0: Amen. While our kids are headed to Children's Church, if you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, would you take them out, turn them on, and join me in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. So We are continuing in a series that we started last week, and I'm so grateful to Brother Danny for kicking us off as I was again away. And uh, filling in and helping us get started. If you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago was Pentecost, and we talked about the importance of the arrival of the Holy Spirit as a gift from the Lord to the church, and that the Holy Spirit is busy, and that He is doing something. Namely, we see in Scripture that He is building something. What the Father authored In eternity past, which is our salvation, Jesus Christ accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And now the Holy Spirit applies as he is knitting together the church. And so I shared with you that we were going to take some time now examining through the New Testament and through the scriptures what this New Testament church looks like. And so we have entitled this sermon series, "Ecclesia." Can you say that with me? Ekklesia. You've just learned some Greek. Uh, Ekklesia is the most common Greek word throughout the New Testament used to describe or used for the church. When Jesus initially says to uh, Peter and to his disciples, when Peter declares Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, the Christ, he says, you're right, the Holy Spirit is who has revealed this to you, and it's upon this truth that I will build my church, Ekklesia, It's a combination of two Greek words, to kaleo, which is call, and ek, which is out. So it can kind of be understood the church is those who are called out. And so we're asking the question um, what is, last week's question was kind of what is the church? When I was growing up in church, and maybe you, if you grew up in church, you remember the little um, little thing that we used to do, right, it was little kids. And i got to kind of turn around this way because it's weird, and I'm sorry for those of you that are off over here. But y'all remember, you put your hands together, and remember the little rhyme? Say it with me. Here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Close the doors and hear them pray. Open the doors and they all walk away. Right? So from a very early age we are being I was taught kind of this notion of what is the church and what is the purpose of the church that the church is this place where people come together and they talk to the lord right for a period of time But as we grow we realize that maybe we have different understandings of the church right? We often say, you know, I'm, I'm going to the church. And in that, we, re- we are referencing specifically a building that is set apart for the worship of the Lord and the gathering of his people, right? Well, then there's the notion of, say, I'm going to church. And we might reference that as a Wednesday night Bible study or even a Sunday morning Sunday worship service, right? The, the church is this notion of some previously scheduled routinely weekly event for the worship of the Lord. But we can also say, I'm giving to the church. And in that, we're thinking about specifically a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization in the United States. Or we may even say, I go to Spring Creek Baptist Church, which is this group of like-minded individuals organized together for the work and the worship of the Lord. And while none of these ideas and notions of what is the church is inherently evil or wrong or sinful— What we find, though, ultimately in Scripture is that they fall far short of the fullest picture of the church, which is perhaps expressed most beautifully in the ancient Christian statement of faith, the Apostles' Creed. There's a line in the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the holy Catholic church. Holy meaning a body that is set apart, sanctified for the Lord. Catholic with lowercase c, not the big C that refers to the Roman Catholic Church, but Catholic meaning universal or undivided. I believe in the holy, the set-apart, sanctified, undivided church. This notion is expressed in the passage of Scripture that you looked at last week in 1 Peter, where Peter envisions the church as living stones being built together into a spiritual house a holy and royal priesthood that are constantly offering up spiritual sacrifices pleasing to the lord a chosen race a royal nation or a royal nation a people for god's possession and his purpose in the earth in scripture the church is more than just a place where we gather it's more than a program that we enjoy or participate in It's more than an organization that we serve. According to Peter, the church is a people. And so the question then is, who are these people? What is the church? It's a people. Well, who are these people? Who then is the church? According to Peter, as he gets to the end of that passage of Scripture, who the church is, is that it is those who have been called out of spiritual darkness into God's marvelous light and called together, he says in that passage of Scripture, for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of God. So if we're going to understand who the church is, the church in, throughout 1 Peter and throughout the New Testament, the church is all of those who have been born again by grace, through faith in Jesus, all of those who have been born again by grace, through faith in Jesus, belong to the church. The church is God's people for a purpose, and they are also, we'll see this morning, God's people on purpose. Meaning that being a part of the church is neither accidental nor is it incidental. We see this not only in Peter's letter, but this passage of Scripture that I ask you to turn to in Acts chapter 2, as we see the very beginnings, the germination, inauguration of the church in Acts chapter 2. Look with me, if you will, in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2 this morning. Luke writes, Now when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? about 3,000 souls. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the time that we have to gather together around your word in the name of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would guard this time. Holy Spirit, you are here to lead us and guide us into all truth. So I pray as we set our minds to understand this beautiful thing that you are building, which is the church. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us clarity. I pray that you would give us conviction. I pray that you would move us to follow Jesus Christ, following his examples, believing on him more and more for the glory of his name and the good of our community and this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Church of Jesus Christ consists of all of those who have been born again by grace through faith in Him. This last verse that we just read, verse 41, tells us that on that day, that day in Pentecost, that there were added to their number 3,000 souls. The church, what Peter envisioned as a spiritual house, a holy fraternity, a royal family, is not something that is stagnant. Instead, it is something that is living, and living things grow. And so we see here that the number of those who were added to the church was 3,000. The church is growing as, as new members are born again into the family by grace through faith. And so as we ask the question, who is the church? The church is the people of God called out and born again by the gospel of God that have responded in faith. We have to ask this morning, what does this faith, as we see here in this passage of scripture, what does this faith entail? Faith, first and foremost, requires the hearing of the gospel. Verse 37, Luke opens up that the crowd heard this and what they heard cut them to their heart question is, what did this group hear? Well, if we back up in Acts chapter 2, and I won't read it all, but you'll remember where we were a couple of weeks ago on Pentecost, that at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came in power, and the Holy Spirit filled the disciples and the apostles of Jesus Christ. And that was a sign as they then went out into, the, into Jerusalem proclaiming the excellencies, the glories of God. And the people were curious with this, and then Peter stood up as the mouthpiece for everyone else, and he began to preach, and he began to proclaim what the, the meaning behind what it was that they were experiencing. Because initially, the people thought that these people were just drunk. Peter said, they're not drunk. It's only like nine o'clock in the morning. It would be ridiculous for them to be drunk right now. And instead, Peter then began to proclaim that what they were witnessing was the fulfillment of prophecy. And he goes back to the Old Testament and he talks about the coming of the Lord and the the day of the Lord and that God would fill his people and that they would begin to prophesy and that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and that all those, verse 21, who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. And he began to then proclaim to them the truth and the reality of who Jesus Christ was, that Jesus was someone that they knew. That he was testified and, and, and he testified to the Lord and he was attested to by the Lord in the fact that he worked mighty works and wonders and signs by God's power through him. That's what Peter declares in verse 22. That Jesus Christ was more than just a powerful prophet. He was attested to by God and yet he was killed. And the question though is who killed him? And Peter's response is these people. He looks at this crowd of probably over 3,000 individuals standing in front of him, and he says, you killed him. He was put forward by God's eternal plan, but you are the ones who killed him. Though he was innocent, they were guilty. Though he was innocent, we were guilty. I mean, think about it. Was it reasonable that all 3,000 of these individuals were present at the time that Jesus was declared, what well, Pilate was trying to ask, should I crucify Jesus or Barabbas? And they all cried out for Barabbas. I think that it was unlikely that these were here. And yet, nevertheless, Peter lays the death of Jesus Christ at their feet. Because the death of Jesus Christ lays at our feet. Because it was our sin that demanded his sacrifice. This one who was attested to by God through powerful miracles and a powerful testimony and a powerful ministry was crucified in our place. He died, though he didn't deserve it. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead, raising him to new life. It was God's Divine act of overruling the judgment that was placed on Jesus Christ by sinful humanity as God raised him back to life in this glorified state, in this glorified body, as he began to minister to his disciples for 40 days. And then God took Jesus Christ and exalted him such that he is exalted right now at the right hand of the Father, ministering for us, interceding on our behalf, and reigning and ruling all over the world. This This one that you killed is now in charge of everything. And that should terrify you, is what Peter says. And it does. That truth cuts to the heart of these who heard him preach. It pierced their hearts, cutting them with conviction and exposing their sin and their need for forgiveness. The message of the gospel itself is powerful and it must be heard paul declares this in romans chapter 10 verse 14 how can anyone call on him in whom they've not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard and how will they hear without someone preaching Brothers and sisters, we've fallen into this really horrible trap that says, you know what, I'm just going to live my life for Jesus and I'm just going to behave myself and I'm just going to live this morally excellent life in front of everyone else and my morality is somehow going to prompt them to come to me and say, what's different about you? Your life, brothers and sisters, has no power to change anybody. Amen? Amen. Your morality means nothing when it comes to the salvation of someone else's soul. It's the gospel that must be heard in order to believe. This past week, as I was at the Southern Baptist Convention in California, my favorite part of the annual convention of the SBC is the IMB commissioning service. The Southern Baptist Convention exists. Because we believe that as a big tent, a big umbrella body of believers, we can do more to fulfill the Great Commission together than we ever could alone. And so we unite our finances and our efforts in order to send missionaries all over this world Dr. Paul Chitwood, who is the president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, declared repeatedly and declares repeatedly, the single greatest problem facing our world is not inflation. It's not higher interest rates. It's not a war in Ukraine. It's not terrorism. The single greatest problem facing our world today is lostness. As over 157,000 people die every single day unsaved and destined for hell. At the end of your 24-hour period today, there will be over 157,000 more people in hell than when it started. And that should break our hearts. That should terrify us. According to the IMB, there are four point of those 150 plus thousand people who will die today unsaved and away from the Lord. 4.7 billion are unreached with the gospel. Unreached. 272 million are classified as unreached unengaged, unreached people groups, which means that there is currently no real missionary presence among those people at all. Many of them we're trying to find. We know that they exist, but we don't know where they are, so we can't get to them. So of those 157,000 people, many of them have never even heard the name of Jesus. They have no chance to respond. And oftentimes as Christians, we're challenged well, with, with, well, isn't that not fair? If they've never even heard the name Jesus, is it fair for them to then be condemned when they've not even heard the message that they're supposed to respond to? And the answer to that question is ultimately really layered, but two things that I would lay out here because I don't have time to run down the rabbit trail of it. First and foremost, whether or not they've heard the name Jesus doesn't change the fact that every single one of us, the Bible says, have sinned against a holy and righteous God and are accountable to him for that sin. Okay? There's no such thing as the innocent person on the other side of the world who's never heard of Jesus. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And to the question, well, is it really fair, I would ask the responding question, well, let me ask you this. What's the consequence, or better yet, if not hearing the gospel give someone a free pass into heaven, what then becomes the single greatest missionary strategy on the earth? If someone, if, if someone never hearing the name of Jesus gets a free pass into heaven, then what should we all do? Shut up! Close the doors and go home! Kill every single Christian and every single Christian uh, missionary on the planet, because if nobody hears the name of Jesus, everybody goes to heaven! But is that what the Bible tells us to do? No. See, the problem that there are people around the world who haven't heard the gospel should break our hearts and motivate us to go. And if we can't physically go, we should, as churches, do everything we can to get missionaries to them that they might hear and believe. The gospel transforms life. It's not my moral code. It's not my exemplary, exemplary behavior that pierces people's hearts. It's the gospel that pierces hearts. And we must take the gospel, the message of the gospel to our friends and to our family and to our neighbors and to our strangers all throughout our city, around the nation of the United States and around the world. Because it's only the message of the gospel that transforms lives. It's the gospel that convicts us. It's the gospel that transforms us. It's the gospel that must be proclaimed. But Faith not only requires the hearing of the gospel, faith also requires believing in the gospel. Peter's audience was cut to the heart when they heard the message of the gospel. That conviction that they felt is an exposing in their own hearts, in their own lives, as the evidence of their belief in Peter's presentation of the bad news. You are guilty. Christ died for your sake. God, Christ died in your place they accepted his diagnosis of their sin condition and then begged for a prescription in what to do as they cry out, what then shall we do? Peter's prescription is to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the reception of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes in our rush to be obedient, we skip over this essential moment right here that we see the belief in the gospel settle into the hearts of these individuals. Brothers and sisters, obedience without belief is worthless. Obedience without belief is worthless. That's morality. That's religiosity. That is nothing. It is powerless for me to change my behavior without there first being a transformation of my heart. Scripture aims for the heart first because that's the place then that changed behavior actually ultimately matters. And so faith requires that we hear the gospel and believe the gospel. Those who repented and were baptized are first and foremost, verse 41, those who received his words, right? those who received his word, verse 41, were baptized. As much as we emphasize the importance of baptism, and we'll spend some time explaining that in just a minute, as much as we emphasize the importance of baptism, we must recognize that throughout the New Testament, the way that Luke and the other New Testament authors refer to the church is not as the baptized. It's not as the obedient, necessarily. As you move on in the book of Acts, the most dominant word that describes the church, these people are those who believed. Believers. They are who we see. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed. When you get over into verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own but they had everything in common and on and on Luke is going to go some 20 or 30 different times when he references the people of God it's those who believed he believed he accepted not only the bad news of his sin of their sins but they also cried out For the good news that they could be forgiven of their sins, the fundamental mark of Christianity and members of the living body that Peter sees is belief. And this belief is not a past tense reality for Christians. This belief is the mark of the ongoing experience of life in Jesus Christ. You've heard me say it repeatedly from this from this pulpit, John chapter six. Verses 28 and 29 is one of the most convicting and life-giving verses of Scripture that I have experienced over the last couple of years as the disciples come to Jesus Christ. And they say in that verse, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? All right, Jesus, I got my pen and my pad out. I'm here. Everybody else is going away. You're the bread of life. That's great. I believe it. Now, what do I need to be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' response in verse 29 of John chapter 6, this is the work, singular of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Long before the life of the Christian is to do and be obedient, the life of the Christian is to believe and hold fast to the faith. Hold firm to the gospel. Stay in my belief that Jesus has already done everything for me. And my doing is not for my salvation. My doing and my obedience is only for his exaltation. Our obedience must be fueled by our belief. Otherwise, it is worthless. And so if you are here this morning and you've been baptized but you've never believed, if you show up at church if you pray and read your Bible and tithe and you're the most exemplary Christian that has ever existed, but you've never actually believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've got it backwards. And all your best behavior is worthless in front of the Lord because your best behavior is never enough. But Jesus is his. And my challenge to you, to me, is to hold fast to Jesus to believe on Jesus. Obedience without belief is worthless. But brothers and sisters, belief without obedience is lifeless. Faith not only requires hearing, not only does it require believing, it requires obeying. James says faith without works is dead. To say, oh yeah, I believe that, but there's no fruit or evidence of it in my life and in my behavior means that I'm really telling a lie. My belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ will transform my life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel demands a response. The gospel is transformative. It changes our lives, our desires, our affections, and it changes our behavior. When the crowd heard the gospel, when they believed the gospel, it prompted them to cry out to Peter, What shall we do? Peter's response in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we dive into this verse, we have to be careful, first and foremost, of reading too much into any one verse of Scripture. Okay, this is a very specific day in the life of the church. Some very pertinent and powerful things happened on this one day. But we have to allow other scriptures to interpret scripture. We have to read all of scripture and not any one verse and build our practice on the the culmination of what the Bible teaches us instead of one thing. Because there are many people who take this verse... And they interpret this verse to then say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so there are many churches who proclaim that baptism is salvation. There is something salvific about the waters of baptism. The Catholic Church is an example. Some non-denominational churches, if you're in a church and you hear the pastor say, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you for the remission of your sins, the Church of Christ and several others, they are teaching that this step is a part of your salvation and that the waters of baptism are essential for your salvation. But when we read the rest of Scripture, we see that that doesn't actually hold true. Because if that holds true, all it takes is one thing to break the rule and break the example. What about the thief on the cross? Jesus' promise to him was that today you will be with me in paradise. They didn't take him down off the cross and baptize him real quick and hang him back up so that he could die and go to heaven. So when we read this passage of Scripture as essential as it is, we have to ask, okay, is this just about practice or is this about a broader principle? And so the broader principle that we get out of Peter's command is first and foremost, repentance. What is essential to a belief in the gospel that looks like something? What is essential to our obedience? It's repentance. Repentance literally means turn. Not 360 degrees, because then I'm going the same way. Turn 180 degrees. It's turning from myself. It's turning from my sin. It's turning from my faith in my behaviors and in my obedience and in my morality. It's turning completely from me, but it's also turning to someone. I'm not just supposed to turn to this vague void that doesn't exist. I have to turn from my trust in myself and turn instead to Jesus. The author of Hebrew commands us to set aside every weight and every sin that would hinder us. How? By setting our eyes, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith, which is Jesus. You want to fall less in love with your sin? Fall more in love with Jesus. Stop Yes, there is a necessity to start changing your behavior and putting strictures in place and asking for accountability and everything else. But if you want to see sin eradicated in your life, it's not by creating a system of rules of all of the things that I'm going to do to keep sin away from me. Instead, I'm going to run after Jesus with everything that I've got. And the further I get to Jesus, the farther I get from that sin. It's turning from me. It's trusting in Jesus, not in myself, not in my works, but in him. It's believing, Acts 2, verse 21. Just look on the other page. The Old Testament promised, and it was fulfilled, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repent of your sins. Turn from yourself. Trust in Christ. But then we get to the baptize section. And I believe that the principle that is established in being baptized is we are to repent, to turn, and we are to follow Jesus Christ. What is baptism? Baptism is the physical symbol of us identifying with Christ. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus came to the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing the people for the repentance of their sins, right? And Jesus then went into the waters of baptism, not because he had any sin to to repent of, because he was perfect, but because he chose to identify with the very ones who needed to repent and needed to be clean, cleansed, and made spotless and righteous. So Jesus was baptized. Literally, he was immersed, dunked under the water. When he came out of the waters, right? He's in the Jordan. It's not a sprinkling. He went into the water. He came out of the water. And it was at that point that the heavens opened. The heavenly Father proclaimed his his love and his favor on his Son and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, filling him and empowering him for his ministry, right? That's the pattern and the practice of Christ. At the end of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 28, as he is proclaiming that he now has all authority up there and down here, he then commands his apostles to go, therefore, making disciples, baptizing them in the name, singular, not names, but singular, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because at the beginning of his ministry, there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together in one. It's important that he also doesn't say names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because there is only one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. But that's a sermon for another day. And we are to baptize one another. Why? Because it is a declaration of my identification with Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so Paul is later going to explain it this way in both Romans and Colossians. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Colossians 2, 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection to a new life. Historical documents tell us that the practice of the early church was that they baptized one day a year. you got to remember, some of you grew up and you got baptized in the creek. Praise the Lord, that doesn't happen so much anymore. God bless you. You have extra jewels in your crown in heaven because you went in those cold waters, right? So they're out there. They baptized one day a year. They spent, and that's where the tradition of Lent, 40 days leading up to Christmas, they would spend 40, or not Easter, they would spend 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday morning preparing their, their new believers, catechizing them, so training them in the faith so that when they went into the waters of baptism on Easter Sunday morning at sunrise, hello, sunrise services, they would go into the waters of baptism, naked as the day they were born. Right? So you had women baptizing women and men baptizing men. Okay, So Southern Baptist goes way back. Women baptizing women, men baptizing men. It's not exclusively for the pastor. That's a sermon for another day. They would go into the waters. They would face the West, the darkened side of the world, and they would renounce their sin and Satan's control over their life. They would be buried in the the waters of baptism, raised to new life, and they would turn to the sunrise and they would declare their allegiance to Jesus Christ. It was a declaration of, I am now turning from repentance, following Jesus. Because if you go back to Mark, when Jesus came out of those waters of baptism and he began his ministry, he went to his disciples and he found Peter and James and John on the waters. They were mending their nets. And what was his declaration? Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The life of the Christian is a life of following Jesus Christ, following his example, identifying with him. He chose to identify with us in baptism. We identify with him in baptism, and then we follow him. Baptism is a sign of my allegiance to Christ and my commitment to do everything that he has told me to do, to live my life following his example. Because he was baptized, I am baptized immersed in the waters as a believer, declaring my allegiance to Jesus Christ from this day forward, which raises the question then, who should be baptized? And there are many, I believe, faithful brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who disagree with us in this, and they will baptize in sprinkling their infants as part of the covenant community of Jesus and hope then that they grow up into that faith. But nowhere in Scripture do we see that as the common practice. Instead, what we find in Scripture is those who first believed, then were baptized. As a declaration of their personal allegiance to Jesus Christ, not mom and dad's declaration that they hope that they will be allied with Jesus Christ. And so we, as Baptists, exclusively practice what we call regenerate church membership and believer's baptism. Only those who have believed on Jesus Christ are baptized belief first and then obedience and so if I was baptized without belief guess what my obedience without belief is worthless I just got wet congratulations what happened to you is the same thing that happens when I take my little boys and dunk them in the swimming pool in summer it has no power or authority belief must come first and then it's my belief that gives that act significance And so does that really matter? There's a lot of people that ask. When you come to the church and we have the conversation, we'll talk about regenerate church membership next week. When we have that conversation and I'm in the office, I ask you, to I want to hear your testimony of salvation in Jesus Christ and your testimony of baptism. Subsequent to your faith in Jesus Christ. Does that really matter? Yeah. Because my job is to lead this church to be as faithful to Scripture as I possibly can, first. Second, because there have been hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of men and women who have been murdered for that belief. Executed by the Catholic Church and many others as they stood for the biblical truth and the biblical practice of believer's baptism. And I won't turn my back either on God's word or those faithful brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Yes, it matters. And so if you are here and you desire to be a part of our church family, we are going to ask that you have been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ or that you be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. Because it is a matter not about your baptism, but ultimately about your commitment to follow after Jesus Christ, to be obedient to him. Because Christianity is a life of following Jesus. Faith looks like something. It looks like hearing, believing, and obeying. What is the church? The church is the people of God for the purpose of God, declaring His excellencies to the world. People who have been born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have heard, believed, obeyed. Those who continue to hear, continue to believe, continue to obey again and again and again and again. That's what characterized these in verse 41 who were added to their number. And so my question as I conclude is, is that true of you as well? Does that characterize you as well? Have you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him for your salvation, your forgiveness of sins? Have you looked to him to fill you with the Holy Spirit? If not, then I would ask you, urge you, plead with you, this is serious. Would you believe on Christ today? Would you trust in Christ today? Would you commit to follow Christ every day for the rest of your life? If that is true of you, then hear what Paul says as he declares to them, repent and be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, part of following Jesus Christ is extending the mission of Jesus Christ to your children To your neighbors, to your family, as those who have heard, believed, and obeyed, and who now go and proclaim and invite others to hear and believe and obey.